I'm here today with Wei Yao, a formidable force in contributing to and redefining the for-purpose space. Wei is the author of Redundant Charities and co-founder of Australian social enterprise Umbo. The youngest in a family of doctors, surgeons, and pharmacists, Wei's initial goal was to build an empire of physiotherapy clinics in Australia. When he realized that wasn't his dream, he moved to Asia. It was Asia that helped Wei understand more of his Asian heritage, and Asia that took Wei out of his Sydney bubble and showed him a perspective and opportunity of how he could make an impact. Wei's clout is his decades of work in the social impact space, bringing his education and expertise into some of the world's most needed places, but also having the humility to focus on building sustainable models for the for-purpose sector. We talked about cliche moments, the importance of language and other qualities that are crucial for success in the for-purpose sector, and how reducing dependency on charities is key to making long-term impact. Welcome to Cloud Asia, where we ask guests to take us on their journey to Asia capability, to help us understand what being an Aussie with clout is all about. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Wei Yo. Welcome, Wei. Thank you for being on Cloud Asia. Thanks, Lucy, for having me. Appreciate it. Great to be talking to you today. We met through a few mutual friends. You have had a really incredible and diverse journey through Asia and across various different spaces. Tell us where the Asia journey began for you. My story, like a lot of people's, is the story is based on a lot of sacrifice. I think that's the first thing and then built on a lot of privilege myself. So privilege is easy to explain. Born in this incredible country of Australia and having access to the education and healthcare that we shouldn't take for granted, but often we do. And the privilege is because my great-grandparents migrated from China to Malaysia during a time of famine. And then my parents were students in Australia, mostly because in Malaysia, some of the policies didn't allow my mum, who is Chinese, to study at the university of her choice. And so they came to Australia to study, and that was kind of when the white Australia policy was wrapping up. And they had a decision really about whether or not to move back to Malaysia, where with the Western education they'd have, they would have extremely comfortable lives, drivers and cleaners and cooks and all that kind of stuff, or stay in Australia and live a more humble life, but something that would be easier to raise their children in and keep the family together. And they decided to stay in Australia. And that's when I was born in Australia with my two other brothers. The other part of the Asia part for me was going back in inverted commas. It's funny how we say that, even though I was born in Australia, but living in China for a couple of years and then spending um, a further six years living in Vietnam, India and Cambodia as an adult. I want to get to that. But before we do, you started a physio degree at the University of Sydney your mum did a pharmacy degree. It sounds like there is some kind of medical connection in the family. Well, the story is my eldest brother actually studied medicine first up and then he became a surgeon. And my second brother also did a PhD, of which he became a doctor, of course, too. So the joke in our family is that, you know, once your elder brothers become doctors, if you're the third child like I am, you can basically do whatever you like. Because the parents are like, well, the pressure's off. We've done what we have set out to achieve and therefore you can do whatever you like. And there's an element of truth to that because my, my initial goal with doing physio was actually to set up a huge 
swathe of clinics all across Sydney, maybe Australia, and drive a Lamborghini and be super, super, super wealthy. And none of that has really panned out, <laughs> it's fair to say. And and part of that was because when I did physio, I started to realize that there was a whole cohort of people who, through my efforts, could actually have real life-changing experiences. And one particular example, there's this guy who I remember treating when I was in second year uni, whose name is John. He had a stroke. And on day one of working with John, he couldn't sit independently in the hospital. And then by week five of working every day with him as a physio, student physio, he was able to walk down the corridor by himself. And it was this kind of experience that I had and thinking about this and being like, wow, I can really do something quite impactful and change someone's life in a major, major way. Was it physio that took you to Beijing and to China? In some senses, it was not wanting to be a physio. So realizing that physio wasn't really my dream and I packed up everything that I had and put it in storage and then I actually traveled for a whole year in Asia, including doing six months in Vietnam, volunteering in an orphanage. And then I, I took a year studying Chinese in China, studying Mandarin in Beijing. And that's when I got back in touch with my roots and understanding a little bit more about what it meant to be Asian. Growing up in Australia in the 80s and 90s, I really think that more so at that time, there wasn't this real culture of embracing your own culture. It was, we all fall in behind what is the norm of Australian culture, which at that time was cricket, beer, barbecues. It's very different these days, of course. What did you learn or uncover related to your Asian Australian identity whilst you were there? The story is so cliched, it's almost nauseating, but I was standing on the Great Wall of China, looking out at this incredible structure that snaked into the horizon and I couldn't see it and where it ended. And of course, it's, it's incredibly long and it's incredibly old, thousands of years old. And I remember thinking, you know, this is part of me. And so what I realized that was that I am half influenced by my Asian upbringing, including Chinese roots, and half influenced by my Australian upbringing. And I guess very lucky because people like us, we're able to pick and choose what we want from both cultures and we can discard the things that we don't like. So I feel incredibly privileged to have both those perspectives. Absolutely. And for your food nomination, you have nominated Xiaolongbao, which is always a crowd favorite mine personally was that a dish that you had whilst you were in China that got you really excited about it or had always been from your days in Sydney I think I actually first had it in Shanghai which is obviously the home with Yamabao it's a dumpling which everyone loves and then it's pork which is you know always good and it's soup as well I always think that it's a little litmus test of how good a Shanghainese restaurant is is how good this Yanlongbao is. So you have to order it just to get a sense of whether or not this is a decent restaurant. I agree with that. Much of your journey in Asia has been in the for-purpose space. You spent a lot of time in Cambodia. What was it that prompted you to look towards the Southeast Asian region and Cambodia in particular? When I took this one year traveling and the second year in China, and I was in my mid-20s at this stage, and I'd really lived in a bubble before that. I'd been very fortunate to go to private school in Sydney and then study at Sydney Uni and be surrounded by people who were of that same bubble. But I think when I was in Asia exposed to this, I started to realize what most of the world lived like. And 
It was very different from what I knew. I also, as I mentioned, spent this time in the orphanage in Vietnam. And I realized at that time that I wasn't really equipped to help people who were in need. And there was a time where there was a natural disaster, a typhoon came through the town, lifted the roof off this orphanage and the kids had to sleep on the classroom tables. And I remember just feeling incredibly helpless. And I started to realize that good intentions are not enough. And that's when I went back to university to study international development and went back out to Asia. I think Asia, firstly, shouldn't be talked about in a singular way. It's very, very diverse, first of all. But I really felt that I had something to offer because of the perspective of my upbringing as well. And I wasn't like coming in cold and I could speak Mandarin to a certain extent when I worked in China in 2011. So I have real fondness with Asia. Cambodia, of which I have no Cambodian heritage as well, it's also a country that I can identify with a lot because it's been really under a lot of external control. And that's quite similar to Malaysia, where my parents are from too. Cambodia is a, a very special place in my heart. And I spent six years of my life there and really treasure that time that was there. Tell us about the various different charities you founded, or maybe even before then, I'd love for you to share the slight nuances between charity, social enterprise, and the not-for-profit sector. Definitely. First of all, all of these forms would be known as, as you said, for purpose, or they can be called social impact. They're basically there predominantly to help people or planet make the world a better place. That's the basic tenet. But the structure is different. So a non-profit is different to, let's say, a for-profit company because it doesn't have shareholders. It has members and members have voting rights. And when they vote at the member meetings, they can change aspects of the non-profit organization, but they don't return any dividends in terms of the profit to these members. Of course, in the title non-profit, it doesn't mean they don't make a profit. All it means is the profits reinvested back in to further this social mission. And then you've got a subset of nonprofits that are charities, and they're typically the things that we think about in terms of world vision or entities that are there to solve a social problem. Whereas nonprofits can be a tennis club, for example. So that's not really what we think about when we think about charities. And then social enterprise is a for-profit entity, which does have shareholders and is structured the same as a for-profit company. But there are typically two things that separates it from a, a company. The first is that in its constitution, it says, we exist to help this particular social aspect, again, people or planet. And then also 50% of the profit is either used and given to a charity to further their social mission, i.e. outsourced, or is invested back in to further the social mission of the social enterprise. Okay. So what was the first not-for-profit or social enterprise that you got involved in Cambodia? Yes. When I was in Cambodia, so my background's physiotherapy and I've worked with people with disability before and I'm aware of allied health professionals, but people kept on telling me that the lack of speech therapy was the biggest issue facing kids with disabilities in Cambodia. And they're just like, there are no speech therapists in this whole country. And yet it affects over half a million people. And it was just something that was a really obvious gap. So I decided to start a charity called OIC Cambodia, which is starting the profession of speech therapy and building it really from the ground up. One of the key features of this charity is that it has a distinct endpoint. I believe that a lot of charities are caught up in this cycle of dependency where what they're actually doing is they're addressing the symptoms rather than solving the problems and they're sort of maintaining the status quo. And that's because if the charity actually solves the problem, then it makes the charity redundant, but it also takes away a lot of 
jobs and it takes away a lot of justification for existing. There's almost this like perverse incentive to keep things just bubbling along a little bit and keep them in a little bit of state of disrepair so that the charity can justify itself. And I, and I was really clear that I didn't want that in Cambodia. So this charity has an endpoint in 2030. And then the second thing is having an endpoint for the founder and the previous leader myself and being able to hand over the leadership of the charity to a local Cambodian team, which we were able to do in 2017, which is four years after it started. That's amazing. So you founded the charity with the intention at the outset to have this endpoint for yourself. An endpoint for myself as the founder and an endpoint for itself as the charity. In 2030, we say it will shut down when we have 100 speech therapists that are integrated into the public sector, i.e. basically working for the government, that means that we've hit our KPI or a marker of success. And then from that, we expect this profession to keep on growing so that these over half a million people can access the service. Our goal is not to take the profession from zero, which is what we found it at, all the way through, because that's a goal that's way too far in the future. What we're going to do is we're going to set up the environment and incentivize government and other sectors to grow this profession for themselves, and then we'll shut the charity down. It's a very interesting model, one that I know you've spent a lot of time researching and creating frameworks to argue for this thesis, and you have just recently published a book called Redundant Charities on this. I think it's an incredibly fascinating thesis that you have, and it kind of goes counterintuitive to what people often think, right? If you're doing good, if you're making an impact and you're making people's lives better, why stop that? The key question is, what is the point of a charity? And this is taking the step back and asking ourselves, what's the point of what we're doing and why are we doing it really as well? I don't personally think charities in 2024 are purely just there to make lives better. It has to move beyond that kind of model. That model is a very traditional model of charity where you input A to a charity and you output B. A charity will, for example, say, we're going to solve homelessness in Australia and we'll eradicate homelessness as an issue. And then you look at this charity and you're like, okay, but you guys only raise $10 million a year. Is that enough for you to solve homelessness in Australia? And I would argue, no. Maybe the role of a charity is not to be the change. Maybe the role of a charity is to instigate change, is to catalyze change, and then to provide a systems change that someone with the capability of making that change can carry on. In the instance of homelessness, maybe it's the government, maybe it's private sector, but it's certainly people who have the firepower and the ability to make this change. The issue with the current and traditional model of charity is that we never actually solve the problem. We, all, we only ever address the symptom. And then these problems remain endemic and they're never actually solved. Are there any examples in Asia or in Cambodia where there have been successful redundant charities by that definition? So before I provide that, it's important to think about the counter example. So what the status quo is in a particular area of development known as WASH, which is water and sanitation and health, there has been a trend, let's say, of foreign charities coming in and just building wells. You need drinking water in the village, we're going to build a well for you. Of course, as you probably know, they come back later on, no one's using it, it's broken, they don't know how to, to fix it. They're not invested in it, it's just simply a tick box exercise. But there is a charity that's bucked the trend, which is Watershed, 
what they did was they set up in Cambodia and they said, we're, we're going to work with you in this province to the government for 10 years. And we're going to set you up to be sustainable yourself. Use us for 10 years to get where you want to be. We'll provide the expertise, maybe a little bit of funding, but we also expect you to provide funding too. And we expect you to carry it on once we're gone. And then the beautiful thing they did was they turned the exit, which might've been seen as a um, something to be sad about, into something to be proud about. So they created what they call graduation ceremonies, where they would invite the government officials of this province and they'd throw a party and they'd have confetti and cake, obviously, and like celebrate. And then they'd say, hey, you've graduated from this project and you're now capable of doing it yourself. And as far as I'm aware, those provincial governments in Cambodia are doing it themselves. So it's a very, very progressive and different concept of what a charity should be. But I think this is the kind of model that we need if we're actually going to solve a lot of these intractable problems. When you're in Cambodia or in Asia, do you see a lot of other Australians doing similar work in the region? I mean, this model of charity is not particularly common, despite the fact that charities, when you ask them about this, do say, oh, we're working ourselves out of a job and we're empowering other communities and and that kind of stuff. But I think the reality is that it's still very much a traditional model. I think things are changing slowly, but it takes a bit of time and it's certainly not common. There are a lot of Australians working in Asia, of course, Cambodia, well, when I was there at least, which is pre-2017, there were lots of Australians working in Asia. Were they working in the same way? Probably not. I think one of the other key things about working in Asia, and this is so straightforward, is learning the language. You know, as an approach, you have to understand how local people think. And the only way you're going to do that is by learning the language, which is quite uncommon from my time, at least, in Cambodia. That's an interesting point that you make, and it is something that I'm personally very interested in. It does come up in a lot of our earlier episodes as well, that importance of language. It sounds like, in your view, language is quite crucial in terms of having a much deeper connection and building relationships with people, locals on the ground. Building relationships and also understanding how they think because you don't, you will never know this until you understand how certain words are structured. So, for example, the two Asian languages that I studied and learned were Cam, uh, Cambodian Khmer and Chinese, and they're both very functional languages. Like the words for, let's say, uh, diabetes is blood sugar sick. And so you then understand the practicality of the language, which seeps into the practicality of the culture as well. I do also remember a time when I was in Cambodia that I was due to meet this charity and they worked with people with disability. And the person I was supposed to meet is a, is a French guy who couldn't speak Khmer. And then he introduced me to his Cambodian colleague and we just started chatting in, in their local language. The information that I got on that day from this Cambodian counterpart of his, who I wasn't supposed to meet, was absolute gold. I think you do have to speak the language to be able to work at any decent level. Do you think technology will be able to remove that barrier? I'm not aware of how technology could completely fix it. I mean, obviously, there are translation apps and so on at the moment, which work reasonably well, probably. But Don't forget that often in places where they really need the help, the technology access is not that great. In the really regional parts of Cambodia, very rural parts, their ability to use technology is probably quite low. 
And what are some of the other leadership qualities you think are quite crucial for individuals to succeed in Asia, coming from Australia, thinking specifically related to your sector as well? I think really understanding the history of a country is very important and the power dynamics within. So Cambodia, as I mentioned, first of all, you know, a lot of um, colonialism through French rule. And then there's this kind of like new colonialism, which has been created by the UN because the, the UN actually formed a transitional government in the mid 90s. And then there was the UNization of Cambodia, which at one point had the highest number of UN agencies in the world were centered in Cambodia. And I believe the second highest number of charities located in Cambodia too. And what that does is it strips the power and control from local people. And so any interaction that you have in Cambodia as a foreigner, it doesn't matter what color your skin is, as long as you're a foreigner, it's important to understand that power dynamic and how that plays out in modern day Cambodia. One of the things that we're really good at in Australia is championing underdogs. This is a very Australian cultural aspect that I love. And so bringing that mindset to places like Cambodia and really understanding how there are people that traditionally not been in positions of power that we can empower to then solve their own problems and to create the, the kind of future they want for themselves as opposed to the future that we want for them. That's really key as well. That's where things like handing off leadership is really important to make sure it's Cambodian run and not run by the foreigners who think that they know better. It sounds like for Australia or Australians, the way that our society is created as well. We have so many different heritages and cultures. It makes us a lot more understanding of being able to implement that model or being able to, like you say, empower people on the ground to be able to take on those roles. I agree completely. I think Australians are very are really well placed because we're not as hierarchical as some other countries in terms of how we approach things. There's a downside to that, of course, tall poppy syndrome and so on as well. But because of that lack of hierarchy and the irreverence of traditional Australian culture, and as you said, melting pot of so many different cultures, we can actually play a very strong role in empowering people in Cambodia and also giving up our own power and letting them take charge of their own destinies. On the charity side, thinking in particular in Asia, for others who are thinking of creating a charity with this purpose to make it redundant and to pass it on, what are some of the things that they should be thinking? How should they be reframing some of those traditional mindsets as it relates to starting a charity or operating a charity to align with what you're saying and making it into a much more sustainable model. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head before, Lucy, when you said starting with the end in mind. It is actually that simple. So what is the end point of this charity and what happens next? They're kind of the two key things. And when am I going to actually hand over that work and when's it going to shut down? As hard as it is for a founder to come to terms with, the reality is that these charities do end. They do pull out of countries. They do shut down. And the research shows that there are two key reasons. The first one is charities end their work in countries like Cambodia because they ran out of money. The second one is the host government, let's say the Cambodian government in this case, and the donor government, let's say the Australian government in this case, they don't get along anymore. There's a political reason and the funding gets nixed and then they have to pull out. Now, neither of these reasons are internal reasons. These are all external 
things that happen to us. And so if we have to shut it down externally, we tend to leave things behind in a mess. So my argument is, if they're going to shut down anyway, we might as well shut it down intentionally on our terms and make sure we don't leave people in the lurch. Let's set them up to succeed so that the legacy that we leave behind is still strong. For someone coming into an established charity, how best can they communicate that thesis to the board or to those stakeholders? First of all, I'll say it's incredibly hard. It's much harder to do that than it is to set it up from the beginning. It's kind of like trying to turn a barge around as opposed to building the raft intentionally from the beginning and setting off in a certain direction. It's hard because incentives and livelihoods are set up in accordance with the idea of the charity constantly living. But I think one of the better arguments is if we manage to pull out of this country or solve this issue or wrap up that piece of work, we can do something else. Let's face it, there are always going to be more issues for us to work on in this world. We're never going to have zero issues for charities to solve. And so therefore, once we finish with the one in a certain country, we can move on to something else. And there are charities that are doing that quite successfully. Now that you're back in Australia, you've got some other projects that I know you're working on. Have you brought a lot of what you've learnt and some of those experiences from your time in Asia back to an Australian context? When I came back to Australia in 2017, there was this fairly misguided in retrospect moment in my life where I was looking for work and couldn't get job interviews and People were saying to me things like, you don't understand the Australian context because you've lived overseas for six to eight years. And I think that's really very narrow-minded thinking because when you live overseas, you actually understand Australia better than someone who's in it. It's like that analogy of a fish in water. If you've been in the water your whole life, you don't even know there's water around you. But you step outside of the fish pond or the fish bowl, you can actually see what it is and you can compare it to something else. That's been really crucial for my work in Australia now with this entity Umbo that we created six years ago. We work in regional communities predominantly in Australia and we're doing online speech and occupational therapy, very archetypal Australian families that we're working with as well. Having the perspective of what I have in China and Cambodia and India and Vietnam has helped me to understand Australia better. I think it's also helped me to understand different perspectives better as well. And that's, again, another beautiful part about learning a language is you empathize better with people from different backgrounds. So that's all been really helpful. What are some of the gaps coming back and looking at Australia from afar that you've noticed and also some of the opportunities that you've seen? I think in the social sector, Australia, unfortunately, is becoming more and more, there's more and more inequality And it's becoming very much like the States, for example, which we have traditionally abhorred how much of a gap there is between the haves and have-nots. But we're certainly moving that direction rapidly, and it's quite frightening. And I see a missed opportunity here because inequality is bad for everyone. Even if you're in the top of the food chain, it's not good for you either. We need to somehow work out a way to address this that is more than just stopgap measures. And That's the kind of role that I think we do play at Umbo. We're not huge and we're not small. We're in the middle at the moment when we are growing, but we have a thousand plus clients that have benefited from our service and we're helping people get access to really important um, health services and doing our part to address inequality. 
part of what we see every day is the, the tyranny of distance. We see people in regional communities waiting 18 months for really essential health services. If you think about a lot of these people, they're children who are three or four, and they need these services urgently because their window of improvement is quite small. They have to get these services before they go to school. It is urgent. And unfortunately, 18 months is the reality for a fair number of them. Sounds like you're doing some really great work there. Do you have plans to be back in Asia and work on more Asia projects? I'd never say no, uh, Lucy, but I feel like the challenge that we're up against at the moment is so significant that it's hard to even conceptualise. You know, it's like people ask me, oh, the work that we've done in Cambodia on this issue of speech therapy, it's, is it a model that you could take to another country? It absolutely is. But the mountain is so high to climb, you can't even think about the next possible one until you've managed to summit. So I guess that's my roundabout way of saying we'll wait and see. We're running out of time, Way. So I might ask one final question as this podcast and Cloud Asia is really about showcasing Australians with Asia capability and the different journeys and stories and you have an incredibly impactful one in the space and continue to do so. For individuals, Australians aspiring to build a career in social impact, in charity, charitable work in Asia, what advice would you give them in terms of thinking about how to build the right skill sets and experience to make a difference? I think there are two things I'd say. The first is to spend time there and to exist there, whether or not it's learning the language or just being there and volunteering and helping out and taking time to acclimatise and understand because, unfortunately, there's still a tendency for people who have never set foot in a country to think that they are experts, of which they absolutely are in their given field, but they're certainly not Cambodia experts in this example even myself, who can speak the language professionally when I was there and lived there for five or six years, I would never say I was a Cambodia expert. Never. It's just naive. So I think spending time there is the first thing. And I think the second thing is taking a bit of time to think about what our role should be and whether or not that's to address the symptoms or solve the problem. Obviously, I think the latter is a lot more impactful. But I think trying to think about how we go about helping people is as, if not more important than wanting to help people. It's really the how that matters. Some great parting advice. I'm very much looking forward to reading your book. I have a copy right here. So thank you. I'm in my first couple of chapters. It's you know, a fascinating topic and one I think has not been carefully researched and understood. So thank you for leading the way and look forward to keeping updated on your impactful work to the community. Thanks, Lucy. I really appreciate it. Cloud Asia is now on Substack. Subscribe at cloudasia.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, please share it with someone who would also enjoy it. You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn as Clout Asia. Thank you for listening. See you next time.